Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. For our lecture today, we're going back to Oxford University, the year 2002, to a conference called the Cosmic Odyssey. It was time and eternity in the thought of C.S. Lewis. It was a wonderful conference, and I was privileged to give a talk there. We're going to hear it today. It's called Augustine and the Mystery of Time. So come with me to beautiful Oxford University, the Sheldonian Theater, where this conference was held, as I speak about St. Augustine and what he has to teach us about the mystery of time, eternity, and the reality of God in our lives today. It is a great pleasure to be a part of this uh, remarkable symposium on time and eternity, a cosmic odyssey. It strikes me that this conference is something of an odyssey, Uh, particularly for those of you that are going to stay for all two weeks and hear so many speakers, theologians, scientists, people who work in literature and music and art across the disciplines to focus on this great theme. I must say at once, however, that the assignment given to me, as Dr. Poe has just outlined it by the program committee, is rather daunting. We need someone, I was told, who can frame the discussion in light of the historical and classical Christian understanding of how God relates to time and eternity. And to do this in 45 minutes or less. Well, clearly, I need a bigger chunk of eternity to talk meaningfully about time. But I'll do my best. Actually, what I've chosen to do is to explore this theme within only one strand of the historic Christian tradition. We were speaking, Dr. Poe was speaking of the scientific understandings, plural of time. It's certainly true also of the theological understandings, plural of time. But I'm going to focus on one strand of the historic Christian tradition. It is, indeed, a decisively influential strand, namely that of St. Augustine of Hippo, who lived from 354 to 430, and to whom we hold so much in debt as believing Christians across the ages, whom the church, Catholic, not simply Roman Catholic, but the church universal, remembers as Dr. Grazii, the teacher of grace. It was Hans von Kampenhausen who once said of Augustine that he is the only church father who even today remains an intellectual power. Well, some of us may want to argue for a few others being included on that list, including Origen Athanasius, Tertullian, Cyprian, and the Cappadocians to go no further. But the fact remains that Augustine's discussion of time and eternity continues to resonate not only among theologians such as Karl Barth, Jürgen Moltmann, and Colin Gunton, Robert Jensen, many others, but also among philosophers and postmodernist thinkers, including Heidegger, Leotard, and Paul Ricoeur. Augustine is alive quantity to deal with. Why is this? 
Perhaps because, like we ourselves, Augustine lived in one of those fluid, ecotonic moments of history. Do you know that word, ecotone? It's a new word for me. I just learned it recently. It's from biology. An ecotone is where the stream of a river meets the pull of the sea, the ocean, an estuary. And it is a place that is inherently instable, fluid, changing all the time, but also generative, a place of great energy and exchange. And if I could extrapolate from biology to history to talk about an ecotonic moment of history, Augustine lived in that kind of world, and perhaps we could argue so do we. In his case, it was a world that witnessed the death throes of what we call classical antiquity on the one hand, and the birth pangs of the Middle Ages on the other. Now, these are terms that historians throw around with great flourish, classical antiquity, Middle Ages. We know what we mean. But those who lived in the midst of times of eras like this saw things quite differently. It's not as though someone woke up suddenly one morning in 850 or 1002 and said, Ah, I am a medieval man. No, this is a perspective that we place on these eras of history. Looking back, it seems to us we can see that something enormous was happening culturally, historically. And Augustine lived at that intersection of the dying of one culture and the coming painfully and slowly to birth of another. Rome was meant to be eternal. Roma eterna. But on August the 24th, 410, Alaric the Visigoth, whose name itself connotes the harshness and the terror of Alaric, the Visigoth. A figure no, ne no less terrifying to Augustine's world than Osama bin Laden is to ours. When Alaric, the Visigoth, sacked the city of Rome and left it in rubbles. This was a shock to Augustine and to his world. In faraway Bethlehem, St. Jerome, that ascetic scholar who had translated the Holy Scriptures into Latin and who at the moment when he heard about the sack of Rome was busy working on his commentary on Ezekiel. When he heard this news in Bethlehem, he put away his manuscripts and sat stupefied in silence for three days. Why did that on which an entire culture had based its values and hopes collapse with such sudden swiftness? Why had the gods abandoned Rome? How had eternity been so brutally ravaged by time? Indeed, quid est ergo tempus? What, therefore, is time? This was the question that Augustine pursued. He had already explored so presciently this theme in the Confessions, particularly in books 10 and 11. And he returned to it again in the City of God, which he began to write as a response, really, to the criticism against Christians related to the fall of Rome. Because one of the arguments was, Rome had fallen because the Christians are around. They're in charge of things. 
and therefore the gods have abandoned Rome. Augustine began to respond to that argument in his massive The City of God, which he wrote over a period of 20 years, from 410 until his death, really, in 430. He was working on this. I want to retrace just a little bit of Augustine's rather complex argument about the nature of time that was prompted by this historical event. But we must look at what motivated Augustine to do this at a deeper level than just a response to current events. For there was something deeper, I think, at work. This is how Augustine begins Book 11 of the Confessions. Eternity belongs to you, O Lord. So surely you can neither be ignorant of what I am telling you, nor view what happens in time as though you were conditioned by time yourself. Why then am I relating all this to you at such length? Certainly not to inform you. I do it in order to arouse my own loving devotion toward you and that of my readers, so that together we may declare, Great is the Lord and exceedingly worthy of praise. It is out of love for loving you that I do this. You you feel the devotional pull of those words, don't you? Augustine's discussion of time and eternity is not an exercise in philosophical theology. It is rather an attempt at spiritual direction. Augustine does not explore the problem of time out of what would be called in the Middle Ages vana curiositas, empty speculation, idle curiosity, in order to scratch the itch of his intellectual curiosity, but rather as a commentary on the opening lines of the confessions. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Over and over in Book 11 of the Confessions, as indeed throughout the entire Confessions, as indeed throughout his entire massive output of works, 360 separate volumes, Augustine is concerned about the heart, about those whose affections are set on things that are passing away, He says, their heart flutters about between the changes of past and future found in created things, and an empty heart it remains. Or again, who shall take hold of the human heart to make it stand still to see how eternity orders both past and future? Always it is the heart that matters. Whatever St. Augustine has to teach us about the mystery of time and eternity, it is for the purpose of pilgrimage. This is one of his great words, peregrinatio, pilgrimage. Pilgrimage, which is not a restless wandering of Odysseus, but a different kind of odyssey. A journey with a telos, with a goal, toward that city with foundations whose builder and maker is God. 
St. Anselm would put it so famously, all of our thinking about God and about time, about eternity, is a form of faith-seeking understanding, leading towards vision, the beatific vision. St. Paul described as an intimate and perpetual knowing and seeing face-to-face. One other thing Augustine never lets us forget. The proper disposition for approaching the question of time and eternity is humility. Augustine is forever confessing his ignorance and lack of understanding about so deep a mystery. The appropriate mood is interrogative, or at best subjunctive, not declarative, much less imperative. I am seeking questions, Father, not making assertions, he says. To whom shall I confess my stupidity with greater profit than to you, O Lord? It's a nice thing to tell God ever now and then how stupid you are. Augustine does this all the time. Even if I had the skill to master and explain everything completely, he says, I'm limited by the dripping moments of time. Doubtless, this phrase, the dripping moments of time, is a reference to what was called a klepsidra. It was a water clock, which measured time by the slow dripping, drip, drip, drip of a known quantity of water. Very common in Augustine's world. The dripping moments of time. Drip, drip, drip. Because the God of eternity chooses to make his home with a humble hearted, then we must pray with Augustine as we enter this exploration. O Lord, hearken to my soul. Hear me as I cry from the depths. Yours is the day. Yours the night. A sign from you sends minutes speeding by. Spare in their fleeting course a space for us to ponder the hidden wonders of your law. Shut it not against us as we knock. I just want to say here that I think this is very much in keeping also with the perspective of C.S. Lewis. You know his little essay, Time and Beyond Time, which was printed as a chapter in Mere Christianity, in which he says in the very first lines of that chapter to the reader, if you wish, you might as well skip this chapter. You know, it's okay to skip a chapter. You don't have to read everything in every book, right? And some of you may be interested in exploring time, and some of you may find this confusing and unhelpful. So just skip it. He says that. And then he goes on to talk about his understanding of time, which with certain twists and contortions is very much an Augustinian perspective of time. And at the end of that chapter, he says this, this idea has helped me a great deal. If it does not help you, leave it alone. It is a Christian idea in the sense that great and wise Christians have held it and there is nothing in it contrary to Christianity, but it is not in any of the creeds. You can be a perfectly good Christian without accepting it 
or indeed without thinking of the matter at all. Well, that's an interesting statement from someone who thought about it a great deal and wrote about it even. It's very much in keeping with what Augustine is saying here. As we come to this topic, we recognize it is a mystery. And as Yaroslav Pelikan has said, one of his many quotable quotes, to dispense with a mystery is not the same thing as to dispel it. The mystery remains, however deeply we try to understand it. So the spirituality of time, that's what I've been talking about the last few minutes, and it permeates everything Augustine writes. His commentary on time is a prayer, as indeed the whole confessions is a prayer to God, which means everything we say and think about time and eternity, we say and think it in the presence of God, coram Deo. Not as an intellectual exercise to outthink somebody else or try to as a form of coming before God and offering our lives to him as a form of faith-seeking understanding, leading toward vision. With this in mind, we turn now to look at three aspects of the Augustinian perspective on time. So there are three parts to this talk. The first one, I want to talk about the evanescence of time by which I mean the elusive quality of time as we experience it. And secondly, time as understood as a creature of God. And finally, time as the arena of redemption and of hope. These three things, the evanescence of time, time as a creature of God, and time as the arena of redemption and hope. Time itself as something in which God has acted decisively to redeem this world and us in it through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going to end up with Christ, but that's not where Augustine begins. And in that sense, he, in some ways, is a very modern person. Nowhere, in fact, does Augustine seem, I think, more our contemporary than in his analysis of time as an elusive reality, a vanishing ephemeral moment that has no permanence or stability. The poet Schiller put it like this, threefold the stride of time from first to last, loitering slow the future creepeth, arrow swift, the present sweepeth, and motionless forever stands the past. Augustine puts it this way, there is something about time itself which tends toward non-being, something elusive that slips the more swiftly through our fingers the more we try to analyze it or even to measure it. The past no longer exists. It was once ours, but it is no longer We cannot recall it, reclaim it, reshape it, however much we may resent it, decry it, lament it. It's gone. Start with the past. Let's think about the past. The finality and indelibility of the past is a kind of dead weight. And it is a dead weight that supports so much of the pessimism and nihilism of our own times. Just two examples. 
First, the American feminist poet Adrienne Rich in her poem, The Desert as Garden of Paradise. She asked, what would it mean to think you are a part of a generation that simply must pass on? What would it mean to live in the desert, to try to live a human life? Something to hand on to the children, to take up to the land. What would it mean to think you were born in chains and only time? Nothing you can do could redeem the slavery you were born into. Miriam, Aaron, Moses are somewhere else. Marching, you learn to live without prophets, without legends, to live just where you are amidst the wreck of perspective. Without hope, without heart, in these destitute times. This is all there is for those born into chains and only time. Who are able to do nothing to redeem their slavery to an irredeemable past. Later in the poem, she does say that we need to try one more time. To summon all the energy and strength we can to make a valiant Promethean attempt one more time amidst the wreck of perspective. This is our world. This is the world in which we live and move and have our academic beings. The second example of what I'm calling the indelibility of the past, the weight of a past that cannot be recovered, is Nietzsche from a chapter called, interestingly enough, On Redemption, in his Thus Spoke Zarathustra. He is describing here his famous concept of the will to power, which for Nietzsche is the basis, the only basis, really, for courage and action on the part of the ubermensch, the superman, the hero. This is what he says. Powerless against that which has been done, The will is an angry spectator to all that is past. The will cannot will backwards. And that he cannot break time and time's covetousness, that is the will's loneliest melancholy. The that which was is a stone he cannot move. This alone is what revenge is, the will's ill will against time. And it's, it was. Nietzsche is a type of that modern person who is forever pursuing the fear of a closed door, a slam door. The it was. The will can do many things, but the will cannot will backwards, he says. The past is forever gone. But what about the future? Well, the future is not here now. Perhaps it will be tomorrow or this afternoon. There's no guarantee of that. Moreover, once the future does arrive, if it ever does, once it gets here, it will no longer be the future, but the present. And then, without even stopping to have a cup of tea, it will suddenly elide into the past with fleeting alacrity and so become a part of Nietzsche's immovable stone, the that which was, the closed door 
that is finally slammed on all of our hopes and dreams. And so the future, no less than the past, is unavailable to us. We cannot bring it within our grasp, despite the fact that in California and perhaps other places in the world, some people are willing to pay enormous sums, I'm told a half million dollars, to have their body medically frozen at death and stored indefinitely in an underground freezer in hopes that medical science may one day be able to thaw them out, to unthaw them, restore them to life. Cryogenetics is a whole industry based on this premise. Despite this, the future still hangs like a Damocles sword in midair, full of fear and foreboding for all of us. No less than the past, the future is not ours to dispose of as we would. Well, if the past is no longer and the future is not yet and may never be, surely we have the present, the now. This is the fundamental insight of existentialism in all of its various forms. The present is the arena of decision, of enjoyment, of self-expression. Do it now. Buy it now. Live it now. But Augustine is very shrewd at this point. He asks, how do we quantify the present? How do we measure the duration of now? We can talk about, as we frequently do, this present century. A hundred years, right? But if we say this present century began in the year 2000, then already some two and a half years have past. They're not present. And some 97 or so remain to come. They're still in the future. They're not present. So what is the present? Well, perhaps not a century. That's a long period of time. Let's bring it down to one year, Augustine says. This is all Augustine's argument I'm giving you. Perhaps one current year, at least we can say, is present. This present year. But here we are already in the seventh month. That's gone, for good or ill. And the remaining months are not here yet. They may never come. Well, you see where he's going, right? Take it down to the span of a bare day, or a simple hour, or just one solitary moment, a second. The smallest moment you can imagine. If it has any duration at all, it is divisible into past and future. And hence, the present is reduced more and more and more to a vanishing point. Augustine says in Latin, nullum habit spatium. It has no space, no room. It is crowded out by the past and the future, which push on it from either side to the point where it has no room. This is very different from the Aristotelian view of time. For Aristotle, the now, the present, is a point on a line, a part of a continuum. There is some there there. For Augustine, the present is always fluid. It is wholly insecure. It is midway between the vanished past and the unknown future. It's what William James called the specious present. There's a term in German for it. It's even more graphic, I think. Dieser Bruckende Zeit, the 
crumbling time, like a piece of cake, moist cake. You pick it up with your fingers and it crumbles before you can even put it in your mouth. That's like time. It crumbles once you touch it. So time is a boundary between past and future, but it is an ever-shifting boundary. Like a map of the Balkans over the last two decades. The past. Crowding out any meaningful present until we too have nullum spatium. No space. No place. No exit. Sartre's play. But to us poor souls is given no place to rest. Harried by pain, we grope and fall blindly from hour to hour, like water dashed from cliff to cliff in lifelong insecurity. Now, it's at this point in the Confessions where Augustine has given this analysis of the crumblingness of time. At this point, he makes one of his most original moves. Despite the fact that time seems to be so evanescent, it's always vanishing, we can never pin it down. Despite this, he notes, we are, all of us, conscious of intervals of time. We regularly compare them with each other. We say, oh, that was a long time ago, referring to some event in the distant past. Or, that will happen right away like the coffee we're going to experience when this talk is over. Some expected occurrence. It's not here yet, but it's going to happen. Or we might say about some contemporary event, such as this conference, that's going on right now. We talk this way all the time. How can we talk this way, Augustine asks, given the ephemerality, the evanescence of time, as he sees it? When we talk about past, present, and future events like this, Augustine says, we are really describing three realities in the mind. The past is present to us in memory. The present is present to us in attention. The future is present to us in expectation. So time itself is a kind of tension or strain within consciousness itself. It is, he invents this term, I think, distensio animi. It is a distension of the mind or the soul. That's what time is. Now, before we leave this point, I want to make a few comments about this last move Augustine has made, which we frequently refer to as the psychological understanding of time. Number one, point number one. Augustine is not giving back with one hand what he has taken away with the other. By defining time as the distension of the mind, Augustine is simply recognizing that time, at least in its fallenness, as you and I experience it in this fallen world, that time is the arena of disorder in which the soul is constantly pulled and stretched hither and yon in various directions, its moral integrity splintered, and its very existence threatened by sin and by death. 
At one point he says in the Confessions, Ecce distinctio vita mea, this distinction is my life. It's a very interesting word, distinctio, this distinction. It can be translated variously as strain, anxiety, distraction. But it can also mean distorted, misshaped. In fact, in the Middle Ages, it was one of those words used to describe the tortures of the Inquisition, of being distended, stretched out on the rack. It is precisely from this kind of torturous state that human beings need deliverance and redemption. Point number two on the psychological understanding of time. Because Augustine seems to place the reality of time inside the mind, it is tempting to read him, as many scholars have, some scholars have, to read him as the forerunner of Immanuel Kant, who famously distinguished between the world as it is and the world as we perceive it, the noumenal and the phenomenal, to use Kantian jargon. For Kant, time is a grid that we place over all our perceptions. It's a conceptual framework that we construct and impose on the world in order to make sense of the world. And it's very tempting because Augustine seems to reduce time to a mental state, to an understanding within the mind, a distension of the mind. It's very tempting to see Augustine here as a forerunner of Kant, as a proto-Kantian. I think this is fundamentally a mistaken reading of Augustine. As we shall see in a moment, Augustine has a very solid sense of time as an extra-mental reality. In his commentary on Genesis, time does not begin when human beings are created to think about it. Why then all this emphasis on the evanescence of time? All this talk about distensio, about being stretched out to the point of nothingness, no space. Augustine's point, I think, is a religious one. He wants to show us that time is never at our disposal. It is never ours to claim and control and command. Friedrich Schleiermacher, who in my opinion got so many things wrong in theology, was never more right than when he described religion as the feeling of absolute dependence. The evanescence of time reminds us that here we have no continuing city, that we are ephemeral beings, radically dependent on the God who sustains us moment by moment by his sheer favor and love. Augustine wants to show us that our hearts, he's interested in the heart, that our hearts will never find rest in the vanishing flux of time, but only in the mercy and the grace and the patience of time's creator. I want to turn to that theme now. This is the second part of my talk. Time as the creature of God. You know, sometimes our children have the best insights into the deepest mysteries of the faith. I like the story of the little girl, five years old or so, sprawled out on the kitchen floor with a crayon and pencils. The mother comes in. What are you drawing, dear? 
I'm drawing God, she says. But no one knows what God looks like. They will when I'm through. (laughs) Already a Kantian at age five. In dealing with the mystery of time and eternity, Augustine takes up three questions, which are often asked by children. But in fact, they're not childish questions at all. They're some of the deepest questions we can ask. Question number one. What was God doing before he made the world? Question number two. What did God use to make the world with? Question number three. Why did God make the world in the first place? Children's questions, but not childish. Question number one. What was God doing before he made the world? This was, in fact, a stock question in the religious debates of the ancient world. Already in the second century after Christ, Irenaeus has to deal with this question in his debates with the Gnostics. He refuses to really deal with it. He says, I'm not going to speculate about this. Origen, in his day, picks up the question again. And it surfaces yet again among the Manichaeans, from whom, doubtless, Augustine picked it up. It was a standard joke which Augustine told and Calvin repeated. You know, a joke has to be pretty good to last a thousand years. The joke was like this. What was God doing before he made the world? Question. Answer. He was busy creating hell for overly curious people like you. (laughs) Now, Augustine was aware of this joke, but he knew that it was not a sufficient reply to the serious intent behind the question. And so he gives a different answer. This is what he says. It only makes sense to ask what God was doing before he made the world if, and only if, both God and the world are separate items within the same temporal continuum. But they are not. God's years, unlike ours, do not come and go. They are succeeded by no yesterday and they give way to no tomorrow. It is not in time that you precede all times, O Lord, he says. You precede all past times in the sublimity of an ever-present reality. You have made all times and are before all times. Ante, omnia, tempora. Before, with the ante understood there, ah, temporally. It was Boethius who defined eternity as the all-at-once whole and perfect realization of unending life. An unending life which also, of course, has no beginning. But because only God can match that definition. Thomas Aquinas was right to say, as he does in the Summa Theologica, that eternity is nothing less than God himself. So, what was this eternal God doing before he made the world? On Augustine's reading, there was no such before. There was no then, then. Eternity is the dimension of God's own life. It has no fixed span, no margins, no measure, but God himself. But time was willed and created by God as a reality distinct from himself. And the world, here again, Augustine proves to be very original 
in his thinking. He says, time and the world were not only created by God, but they were created together. They were co-created. Is that a word? Co-created. For time is coextensive with the world. This is how Augustine puts it. God created the world not in time, but with time. What this means is that time is not some primordial container in which certain events happen. Time is not a receptacle. It is a relationship. And a number of scholars have pointed out that Augustine's remarkable intuition of the coextensiveness of time and the world, of time and space, anticipated by some 1,500 years the modern theory of relativity as developed by Einstein and others. I would simply add to that thought that Augustine arrived at this not by studying the world scientifically or thinking philosophically. He arrived at this intuition. That's what it was, an intuition, by reflecting on the basic data of the Christian faith, the doctrine of the incarnation. I think we can deal more quickly with the next two questions. Out of what did God make the world? What did he make the world with? This is a perfectly natural question, given the assumption of classical philosophy in all of its various modalities, namely that some kind of primordial matter had always existed. Plotinus said this was, he used the Greek word hule, which means wood, literally. It's the lowest form of creaturely finite existence. So creation, then, is the work of some divine craftsman, Plato's demiurge, who brings order out of chaos, who sculpts and shapes the universe out of this pre-existing matter, the eternal stuff that was always there. If Augustine was original in positing the co-creation of time and the world, he was entirely traditional as a Christian in affirming the doctrine of creation out of nothing, ex nihilo, and de novo. For him, this meant that neither time nor space could constitute a first principle alongside God. Kronos is not theos, but are themselves the products of the creative word of God, the logos of God, whom the Christian church confesses to be the eternal son of God, of the same essence as the Father, united in love with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. ...describes in his treatise on the Trinity, as good without quality, great without quantity, everywhere without place, eternal without time. Why would this sort of God decide to create the world and time along with it? This is an age-old question, and it's common to all three of the world's great monotheistic religions, Judaism, Islam, no less than Christianity. There's a certain kind of answer found in all three of these religious traditions to this question, why God made the world. According to an ancient Hebrew midrash, which was current in Jesus' day, God made the world because he needed to have a partner on whom he could bestow love. 
For love, by definition, requires an object. It must be directed towards something or someone else. Islam, too, has a version of this same motif. In a well-known hadith or tradition, God is acknowledged as saying, I was a hidden treasure. I wanted to be known. Hence, I created the world so I would be known. The same idea appears in popular Christian piety as in the folk sermon that depicts God as saying, back in eternity sometime, I'm so lonely, I think I'll create the universe, so there will be something for me to love. All of these sources tell the same story. God created the world in order to fill some deep deficiency within his own being in order to actualize some latent possibility that otherwise would not have come true. It is precisely this kind of thinking that gives rise to, in our century, what we call process philosophy and process theology. The doctrine of a limited God who needs the cosmos or humanity in some versions of process theology in order to actualize his own reality. Augustine says we don't need this hypothesis, for the doctrine of the Holy Trinity gives a credible response to this question. God does not need to create the world in order to have something to love. No, God is love. Had he never made the world at all, he would have suffered no deficiency, nor would he ever have been any less loving than he is now. God was never Lonely. He was never bored. One of the modern writers of recent times, Anthony Town, in his delightful little irreverent book called Excerpts from the Diary of a Late God, expresses this same idea. I am bored with it all, God says. Here I sit. I am omniscient. I am omnipotent. I am omnipresent. I am divine, I am supreme, I am ineffable, I am, in short, God. But I am condemned to look out interminably in all directions into an impenetrable void. Small wonder that that wretched, horny-tailed ingrate walked out on me. If I only had something to do, something creative, I am omnibored. We don't need that hypothesis, Augustine says. God was never bored. He was never lonely. There is within the being of God an eternal effulgence of reality, a reciprocity of giving and receiving. Karl Barth puts it this way, God loves, and to do so, he does not need any being distinct from his own as the object of his love. If he loves the world and us, This is a free overflowing of the love in which he is and is God and with which he is not content, although he might be, since neither the world nor ourselves are indispensable to his love and therefore to his being. Thus the love of God is free, majestic, eternal love. It is the eternal love in whose free and non-obligatory overflowing we are loved. 
And it is God himself in all the depths of his deity who summons and impels us to love. I like to think in images. I think images are usually prior to concepts. And the image that this quotation from Bart drawing on Augustine is that of a fountain oversplashing, an inexhaustible fountain that forever oversplashes and shares in generosity that which it is, not because it is forced to do so by some inner debility, but because at the heart of God there is this generosity that is love. Now I've got to come to my last point. Time as the arena of redemption and hope. At the heart of the Christian faith, then, is this stupendous claim that the eternal God of creation, the God who is eternity, Aquinas, has so opened himself to our creaturely existence, to our history, to our time, that he has come among us as one of us. This is the incarnation, which we might also call the intemporation. For in Jesus Christ, God in his own being, and not as a surrogate, has come into our own world and also into our own time. And in doing so, he has taken unto himself our hurt, our pain, and indeed our sin. In doing this, Jesus Christ has shown himself to be the servant of time because he too was crowded out. There was nullum spatium for him, as Bonhoeffer says. He was nudged out of the world right onto a cross, the servant of time, but also the Lord of time, the one who redeems time and who redeems us in time and makes us ready for eternity. Better than any theologian, I think, T.S. Eliot has expressed this with a clarity that is compelling. Then came, at a predetermined moment, a moment in time and of time, a moment not out of time but in time, in what we call history, tearing, bisecting the world of time, a moment in time but not like a moment of time, a moment in time, but time was made through that moment. For without the meaning, there is no time. And that moment of time gave the meaning. I think Eliot is a good guide here to what the Christian faith has meant by the redemption of time. Let's look at three things he says in this quotation from the rock, one of the courses of the rock, what he says about the incarnation. It was a moment in time, but it was not like a moment of time. And in that moment of time, Jesus Christ was bisecting the world of time. These three thoughts, a moment in time. The Christian faith is clear about this. A wonderful passage from Galatians 4 where the Apostle Paul says, when the time had fully come. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us under the law. The Greek word for time is in the plural there. It is chronos. Chronoi, actually. 
tick, tick, tick time. Drip, drip, drip time. Time as you and I know it and measure it in seconds and hours and days and years by calendars and sundials and clocks. Into this kind of time, God sent forth his son. In the days of Caesar Augustus, when Quirinius was the governor of Syria, he was born. And he suffered and died under Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilatus, whose name was recently discovered on a stone slab dating from the first century in Caesarea. Pilate, a very dateable, if somewhat despicable, bureaucrat of the Roman Empire under Pontius Pilate. It happened. That, as John puts it in that marvelous prologue, the word became flesh. Some of our modern translations render that the word became a human being. It isn't good enough. That's too weak a Christology. No, the word became flesh. What word? The word who was in the beginning with God and was God, who forever shared the eternal fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the bosom of the fathers. The authorized version puts that. This word became flesh. Halagos egenitas sarx. What is flesh? Flesh is that part of our human reality that in fact is most susceptible to the ravaging of time. It is flesh that suffers pain. Flesh that contracts cancer. It is flesh that we bury in the ground. And this is what the Son of God became for us, says the Christian faith. It was and it is remarkably shocking thought. It was put forth in the early church over against the docetists, those people who said that in Jesus Christ the word of God touched the earth, much as a tangent touches a circle, but that was it. There was an appearance, seemed to be a human being, a real human being, but in fact this was not the case. He was a ghost, a phantom-like ghost. Over against this, Ignatius of Antioch and the early Christian fathers again and again say, they use this Greek adverb alethos, which means really, truly. Alethos, alethos, alethos. He was really born of the Virgin Mary. That's why it got into the Apostles' Creed. He was really crucified under Pontius Pilate. He was really buried. He really truly rose again. Along come the Neoplatonists, with whom Augustine kept good company. And if I were to give a critique of Augustine rather than an explanation of his thought, here is a place where Augustine can be criticized, in my opinion. He, he maybe gave too much credence to the Neoplatonists. But the Neoplatonists also oppose the eternity of God to the reality of the world in such a way as the incarnation is an impossible thought. There is no creation. There is no incarnation. 
And even though Augustine wrote a while with the Neoplatonist, at his deepest level he opposed this view because he could not do otherwise and still be a Christian. In our time, that is to say the last 300 years, it is deism in all of its various forms that the Christian faith has to encounter. The God of Thomas Hardy, who said, God is a dreaming, dark, dumb thing that turns the handle of this idle show. Hardy's God is a thing, devoid of relationship, incapable of love. It is dark, speechless, remote, obscure. Yes, this is a hideous caricature of the real God, but it is a caricature that is widely accepted in today's world, and it is the root of modern atheism. But the Christian faith says that God does not have eternity in such a way as he must set it over against our time. God takes on time for his own garment, even his own body. And there is a Christological and a pastoral meaning to this, as expressed in Hebrews 4. We do not have a high priest unable to sympathize with our weakness, We have one who was put to the test in every way that we can be put to the test, yet without sin. It was a moment in time. But Eliot also says it was a moment in time and of time, yet not like a moment in time. You've got to get this not likeness in your mind. Not like. Remember what they said about Jesus, he taught them as one who had authority and not like, not like the scribes, the Pharisees. If Jesus were just another wise rabbi or a cynic sage or a charismatic healer who flourished on the edges of heretical Second Temple Judaism, then he has no help to anyone with AIDS or depression or loneliness It was a moment in time and of time, and yet not like. Jesus is not Socrates with a Jewish accent. He is not Plato with a beard. We will not get eternity by turning up the volume of time and by saying time louder and louder and louder. And so the Nicene Creed says, confesses, that Jesus Christ is of the same essence as the Father. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, who for us, time-bound and destined to die creatures, for us, who nevertheless carry eternity about in our hearts, our restless hearts. The Son of God came down from heaven for us and for our salvation. It happened in time, Eliot says, but it was not like time. And it happened in time in such a way as what we call history was torn, bisected. By that bisection, that cleavage, history is given a meaning, a direction that it never had before. Yesterday, Tony talked about the cyclical view of history This image of history as a great cycle turning round and round. We associate this with Eastern religions. 
And we forget that Christianity is also an Eastern religion, that it emerged along with Judaism in a context in which the myth of the eternal return was the dominant assumption of the age. Paul in Acts 17, preaching Jesus and the resurrection, and they thought he was talking about a male god, Jesus, and his female consort, Anastasis, resurrection. It's a part of the pantheon of dying and rising saviors, celebrated in the mystery religions, and much more with sophisticated language, in the philosophy of Porphyry and Plotinus. This idea of eternal recurrence permeates the postmodern consciousness. Nietzsche again. How if some day or night a demon were to sneak after you into your loneliness and say, this life as you now live it, you will have to live once more and innumerable times more. There will be nothing new in it, but every pain, every joy must return to you, even this spider and the moonlight between the trees, even this moment, and I myself... Would you not throw yourself down and gnash your teeth and curse the demon? Or would you say, Ah, you are a god. Nietzsche says, Weaklings, those who cling to the old outmoded residue of the Christian myth, who believe in love, meaning, truth, beauty, goodness, they're the ones who gnash their teeth It is the ubermensch who says, Ah, you are a god. But against Nietzsche and against every form of eternal recurrence, the Christian faith answers one word, epaphax, once and for all. There is a German word that says this much better than we do in English, einmaligkeit, the once and for allness of the Christian faith. That's why the Christians argued so furiously about the date of Easter. Such an arcane theological debate, we can't even understand it. Over in Ireland, the monks, the Celtic monks, followed a dating of Easter very different from that promulgated from Canterbury and the Roman tradition here in England. And this led to a great clash. King Oswy of Northumbria was converted by the monks up in Lindisfarne, and he followed the Celtic dating of Easter. But his wife, Queen Eanfled, was converted by the priests from Kent, and she followed the Roman calculations. The Venerable Bede says, Such was the confusion in those days that Easter was sometimes kept twice in one year, so that when the queen had ended Lent and was keeping Easter, the king and his attendants were still feasting and keeping Palm Sunday. It won't do. Not only is this a matter of domestic tranquility, it is also a matter of theological profundity. The Einmaligkeit, the once and for allness. We can't have Jesus dying and rising again two or three times a year. We're back into the mystery religions, the dying, rising God stuff. And so it was the Venerable Bede who introduced that system of accounting for time. Anno Domini. In the year of our Lord. Now today, 
it's not fashionable to talk about A.D. and B.C. in our academic work. We always speak of C.E. and B.C.E., the common era before the common era. But it's still the incarnation. That's the basis for this counting. And the year, which now begins on January the 1st, used to begin on March the 25th. Did you know that? Any of you have done research back in 17th, 16th, 17th century? It wasn't really until the late 17th century that the idea of starting the new year on January 1 began. That was a Roman custom, nothing Christian about it. That's why New Year's Day isn't a great Christian festival. No, why March 25th? Because these old monks calculated... Jesus was born on December the 25th, and knowing a little bit about human propagation, they figured nine months earlier. That was the Annunciation. That was when time really started. The new year, March 25th, which in Britain was called Lady Day, after the Blessed Virgin Mary. A moment in time. A moment not out of time, but in time, in what we call history, tearing, bisecting the world of time. Without the meaning, there is no time, and that moment of time gave the meaning. What does this mean for how we should live? That wonderful title Francis Schaeffer gave us, How Then Shall We Live?, Christians are those who live in time as the ones who belong to eternity. The Christian attitude toward time is neither panic nor indifference, but the paradoxical unity of freedom and unstinted commitment to the world of space and time as the arena of redemption and hope. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ means that God takes time and has time for us. And because of this, we can see time not as a threat, but as a gift, a precious gift, created by God, willed by God, and given by God for us. Christians are those who know that time and this world do not terminate upon themselves. They are penultimate realities that can never satisfy the deepest longings of the human heart, the restlessness. We live in this world ambiguously as those who belong ultimately to another world. My friend Mark Knoll has said some very critical things about that old gospel song. It talks about, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And Mark Noel says, nah, if you're looking at Jesus, the things of earth ought to grow brilliantly clear, not strangely dim. We know what he's talking about. He's protesting, it's a valid protest against the kind of Gnostic pietism, withdrawal from the world that is so deeply rooted in evangelical culture. But there is a sense in which we can properly say what that song says. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. Because there is another danger 
apart from the danger of Gnosticism and mysticism, there is the danger of idolizing this world. There's the danger of becoming so cozy and accommodated to the culture that we forget that we are probationers for eternity. Eternal life is not simply more and more of the same old stuff. It is God's life. God's life that comes to us as a free gift. And we are still pilgrims. We're not there yet. We're seeking a city whose builder and maker is God. And that city is not Rome. Roma Eterna. It's gone. Not Athens. It isn't Washington or London or Moscow. It isn't Mecca. It isn't Baghdad. A city with foundations whose builder and maker is God. And in the meantime, we are called to live by love. Love is the one thing we can experience in time that will remain in eternity. Faith, hope, love. These three. Love is the greatest. Love is eternal. It was about a thousand years after Augustine died that Dante gave a vision of this love. It's a vision which in some ways is a commentary on that medieval portrayal of Christ which you see, for example, in Salamanca at the cathedral. If you go there, you see there the cosmic Christ holding in his hands the moon and the stars. This is the cosmic odyssey. This is how Dante described that vision, tried to describe that vision. Like a geometer who sets himself to square the circle and is unable to think of the formula he needs to solve the problem, so was I faced with this new vision I wanted to see how the image would fit the circle and how it could be that that was where it was. That was not a flight for my wings, except that my mind was struck in a flash in which what it desired came to it. At this point of high imagination, all failed, but already my desire and my will were being turned like a wheel all at once by the love which moves the sun and the other stars. It is the cosmic Christ who leads us in this cosmic odyssey by the love that was written in bloody garments at Calvary, the love that is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. It is the same love which moves the sun and the other stars. Thank you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.